Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast of the Irish Examiner. Now, the world is not in a great place at the moment between the horrifying scenes coming out of Ukraine and the very serious cost of living crisis, not to mention the existential threat that is climate change. But we'll come through it, as we always have in the past, and to delve into how exactly our leaders are addressing these challenges, I'm delighted to be joined by our regular guest, Irish Examiner, political editor, Danny McConnell. Danny, you're very welcome. Uh, Thanks, Mick. Thanks for having me. Danny, I think it's been a while, because the last time we spoke, the pandemic was on the run, the climate was on the back burner and none of us were really sure where Ukraine was. Things have changed fast. Now, can we start with the address to the Oireachtas this week from Vladimir Zelensky? Um, everybody was in their best bib and tucker for the day, I'd say. They were it's definitely a kind of a, a near united front uh, being shown by the doll and the Oireachtas. Obviously, there was those few members of the doll, the Solidarity People for a Profit group who refused to clap. Uh, in support of, of Zelensky, and obviously they took uh, some criticism for that. But by and large, you saw a very emotional and very charged, I suppose, experience when you saw, I suppose, you're dealing with somebody who's essentially leading their country through a war um, and, you know, appealing to Irish political leaders to to keep with them, to ensure to, that the, to ensure that the support doesn't wane. And also as well, I think, it, you know, it was a call to arms, essentially, Mick, to, to kind of ensure that the European Union continues with the, the the latest round, the fifth round of sanctions, uh, but also try and just put the squeeze on Russia as much as possible. Because I think there's a very real fear uh, within Ukraine, and particularly for President Zelensky, is that you know the you know, overriding expressions of goodwill in the short run could, could very soon be replaced by apathy. You know, it, it may fall down the news agenda, etc. like that. So I think there's a concern, and I think Zelensky is a, <clears throat> an art communicator. I mean, I think he has brought the art of communications by a political leader to to a, a new level. Uh, certainly, I, I think what he's doing in a very convincing manner is is keeping the pressure on European capitals because Ireland wasn't the only parliament he addressed this week. He addressed the Spanish parliament as well and a, a number of others as well. So, I mean, this this that that job is almost as important as, as I suppose, rallying uh, his own people, uh, you know, in front of this aggression and obviously in front of the horrific scenes of barbarity and savagery that we've seen, particularly at Bucha over the last four or five days. Um, so I, I think, you know, from Zelensky's perspective, yesterday in the doll could not have gone better in terms of that you got these re, you know, kind of reassertions of expressions. You had Simon Coveney going further on, on the news last night saying that Ireland needs to re-question its neutrality and also that Ireland will be pushing, and be at the fore of pushing for bans on Russian oil and coal despite the resistance of the likes of Germany and France. So, you know, Ireland is certainly kind of moving beyond its normal, traditional kind of, you know, neut- politically neutral sort of standpoint. Uh, we're obviously military n- neutral. Um, but we have seen, and I've been quite struck to with the fervour uh, of Michal Martin and others in the Irish government in terms of the support for sanctions, but also as well as supporting a, a fast-tracking of, of Ukraine's um, entry into the European Union. So 
just much to do in the coming days and weeks for the European leaders. Yeah, as you say, there was that little incident where people for profit wouldn't clap and don't want to dwell on that. Um, they're only one section of, I suppose, what generally referred to in political sphere in Ireland as the far left, and they were the only section who didn't, and that's that, that has been dealt with. But one thing I have to say that struck me, Danny, prior to uh, him actually speaking, and even during his speech, Back a few weeks ago when he was addressing, I think it was the EU, and he made a mention, he, was, he went through the various countries and he said, Ireland almost. And you could, certainly if the reaction on our broadcast media and even print and public in general, I'd suggest, it, this, this uh, ultra-sensitivity about how we're perceived outside and particularly at this time by Mr Zelensky, uh, it was nearly as if, well, what's, what's, what's the problem here? And I, I got the sense that there was nearly people were waiting to see whether he'd follow through on that. Now, personally, I think it's the greatest load of malarkey around. But there's definitely a, a thing in this country about how we're perceived. And if somebody seems to be not telling us we're the greatest thing since sliced pan, there's a bit of hesitation about them. Did you sense any kind of expectation on that level that uh, people were worrying he might follow up or he might um, uh, reassess how he, he saw us? Well, Zelensky, as you said, you know, has not been afraid to give European leaders a kicking where he feels it's necessary. And particularly he did that to the EU a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think there was an expectation that he either would have doubled down on his criticism of Ireland, given our slight ambiguity in relation to our neutral status, or would he try to make amends? And he did, he did the latter. He sought to make amends and, and was very fulsome in his praise for not only the political support that Ireland has shown, but also as well, I think, the support of the, the Irish public in terms of the pledges of support, etc. like that. I, you know, it had been made clear from the Ukrainian embassy here in the wake of that address to the EU leaders that, you know, it was misinterpreted, they sought to play it down, etc. like that. So I, I think it was always more likely that he would kind of emphasize the support and the, the niceties of it. Um, but but I, I do think we, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are a kind of a bizarre nation in terms of we really care what outsiders think of us. We always love that either pat on the head or the tickle of our belly. Um, and, you know, but I, I, what I, on a serious note in relation to this, like, you know, there is a limit to what Ireland can do given our, our, our declared neutral status militarily. But I do welcome, and I've written about this in recent weeks, I do welcome the fact that we're now actually beginning to have a national conversation because I do think that model of neutrality is outdated and doesn't really cut the mustard anymore. So I do think that's welcome. And also as well, I, I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made for Ireland being on the force of good here. And to me, it's very clear as to who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in this. And history has told us it was only when, you know, Europe and European forces and NATO forces led by Tony Blair went into Kosovo, did things stop. It was only when the US went into uh, Sarajevo and put their muscle where their mouth was that things actually came to an end. The Dayton Peace Accord was, was signed. You know, it is just and right, it, albeit be at the last resort, when military action is needed to put bad people back in their place. And ultimately, I think you know, there is a legitimate argument to be had about Ireland's role in that as part of a European force going forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I find it interesting that um, a lot of our thinking on neutrality springs from uh, the Second World War and de Valera's decision that we remain neutral. And under the circumstances at that time, on the basis of, I think it was 1938, 
we only got the ports back from Britain and there was an economic war and there was this lingering animosity and therefore Dev decides, you know, young country, best thing is to do this. What would be very interesting, and to some extent it is happening, you could argue, but what would be very interesting, if a Hitler-type figure was to rise somewhere in Europe today, could we justifiably, in that instance take a neutral stance. I mean, I, I think that type of issue is one that needs to be debated at the very least. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, I mean, the, the context of us declaring neutrality in the Second World War was more to do with our relations with Britain and our standing with Britain. Our refusal to go into NATO at this, in the first wave in 1949 was because it would we, they would have to deal with the thorny issue of the recognition of the state of Northern Ireland. It had nothing to necessarily do with our military standpoint. It was more to do about, you know, this convoluted relationship with the UK. I think we've moved beyond that. You know, I think we resolved. I think Good Friday Agreement has largely solved and reconciled that argument, which allowed us to get into NATO on the peacekeeping side. Uh, since 1999, we've been engaged with missions. You know, uh, since then, so I do think you know the, the the paradigm has shifted, the ground has shifted. I think our relationship post Brexit now means we need more strategic allies anyway, and I think there is an argument to be made about being us being inside the NATO club rather than outside it. But you make an absolutely fundamental point, Mick. Here is like, where does Ireland want to stand? Or could Ireland naturally stand idly by should another Hitler emerge on the continent of Europe? Some would argue that Putin is that figure, you know, in terms of how he's how he's handled. This is nothing to do about Western aggression in terms of Russia. You, you know, you don't bomb and shell Lviv, which is like on the western side of a country, when you're simply trying to resolve a conflict on the eastern side of the border. The the, the rationale from Russia does not stack up. They are clearly in breach of international law. They're clearly committing uh, war crimes. And for me, I think it's time that Ireland put its money where it's mounted it and stands on the side of good rather than maybe stepping and keeping and stepping out of these ones. Yeah, and as you say, at the very least, there needs to be a proper grown-up, and I think even the president, uh, Michael D. Higgins, yesterday mentioned a, a civilised and, and, and fulsome debate on these issues one way or the other. The other element to Ukraine, of course, Danny, that affects us directly in this country is our welcome for the tens and even hundreds of thousands of refugees that are fleeing towards Western Europe. And and we need to take note immediately that it is the countries in Eastern Europe that are bearing the biggest brunt of an influx of uh, refugees. I don't mean a brunt, but they're giving the welcome to, by far and away, the largest number of, um, of refugees from the war. But on that note, what is the feeling in uh, the body politic about the prospect that we're going to, it looks like, certainly in the short term, have an increasingly larger number of refugees here from the war and how are they going to be housed? And are we going to maintain the kind of welcome that has been seen already? That's a very key concern that's been articulated um, within government. I did an interview with Michael McGrath, it was published on Monday, in which he you know, he raised the spectre of people living in tents, you know, the people coming in from Ukraine in, within a matter of weeks that essentially we are at capacity when it comes to hotel accommodation. You know, we don't know yet at, at to what speed have have all those pledges of support from the public uh, been moved on or not. You know what I mean? So I I think that there's a bit of work to do there, but it's a very sobering prospect to think that we are you know when we have 120, 140 vacant units across the country, we can barely house our own people and we have our own housing problem, and yet you know, we're now faced the the very dire prospect of of people coming in from other countries, living in large community centre warehouses. Centers and it may possibly even kind of convert to tents, you know, on, on state land. I mean, this is a prospect that I don't think anyone would have thought 
imaginable a couple of weeks ago or a number of weeks ago. So um, I think I think that that resilience and resolve is going to be sorely tested. It was interesting because I was speaking to a very senior uh, civil servant about a week ago in Dublin Castle, um, and this is someone who has been through Brexit, been through COVID, been through the financial crash and recovery. And, you know, they said to me very clearly that this thing dwarfs all of those others, like this particular crisis in Ukraine. And that puts it in terms of the strain on the state. So that puts it into into some perspective as to what we're going to face over the next 18 months or so. It does. And the thing is, you mentioned Brexit. OK, on, on one level, yeah, we've had to deal with that. But coming out of the pandemic and facing into this is the other thing. The other element that strikes me about that, Danny, is... I suppose this is more to do with the cost of living crisis, which is the other big thing at the moment. You know, there was figures there a few months back that there are now record savings, something like 140 billion. And my take from that was that those of us who were fortunate enough to be able to continue working, to work from home, etc., during the pandemic, you know, the the economic fallout has not been very great at all, as opposed to those who had to go on the, the, the pup, as we call it and who've been out of work, and all of that, who really got walloped by the pandemic, that a divide has opened up there. And now we come to the cost of living crisis, and is that divide going to get even sharper? Yeah, again, you're looking at a perfect storm, Mick, you know, of of cost of living increases, wage increases not maybe not keeping up on par with those. So there's real pressure on the state because obviously there's a new public sector pay deal likely later this year. Um, you have, you know, a whole generation of people, maybe even two generations of people now who can't get a house or are kind of locked out of the property market so they're either stuck living at home or stuck living in overpriced substandard accommodation. And you also look at the prospect of, you know, you know I know the government has introduced its auto-enrollment pension scheme, but you have a large swathe of the population who have made no provision for their retirement. So you have this perfect storm of of underfunding and of a lack of 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 you know sufficiency I suppose to deal with the needs of our of, of our public. You've pressure on every sort of service we have be it the educational, health and otherwise. So all of this is 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 creating this mix that the state and the and the system of which we're supposed to buy into in order to to allow it all work is no longer functioning is fundamentally broken. And ultimately that's why you're seeing Support in terms of political sense, that's why you're seeing support for the left wing parties and Sinn Fein in particular rising because ultimately there, there's a whole generation of 20 something and even including professionals in this who normally would have gravitated towards the likes of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and maybe even the Labour Party gravitating towards other, other, um, other parties because they just simply see the system working for them in any shape or fashion. Yeah, and you mentioned like Sinn Féin, left-wing party, you could debate that sometimes. Some people would suggest it's populist, others might suggest nationalist. But one way or the other, to be fair to them, even if they are populist or nationalist, I don't think at this stage in that party's evolution they're extreme in any fashion. If anything, they're populism light or nationalism light, to put it that way. But if we have a scenario whereby, as, as you laid out very well there, the system is breaking down, is there a chance that we could end up people migrating to a more extreme form of politics as we have seen in other countries, even in Western Europe? I think it's very likely, Mick. And I think, you know, we saw a move to that sort of extreme in the wake of the austerity caused by the financial crash. I mean, like, you know, seeing the likes of Paul Murphy and others 
on the hard left getting elected on, on issues like, you know, preeminently like the water charges issue, et cetera, like that. You know, that was a fundamental structural change in the Irish political system. I mean, Paul Murphy's entry into the Dáil single-handedly moved every other party to the left on the water charges issue and, and, and delivered real change. And, and I think the scars of that financial crash are still there and still apparent on the, on the political system. Just look at the Labour Party, you know, in, in terms of its its level of support. Um, you also have to look as well, you know, in terms of that you're seeing across Europe and across the globe a rise in nationalism, uh, a rise in kind of this authoritarianism in in many states. Now, thankfully, we're not seeing and we're not seeing that kind of there isn't that kind of overt rise in Irish nationalism, um, which is which I think is a good thing. But I, I do think, you know, post-Brexit, tensions have been risen um, because in relation to the border and, and obviously Sinn Féin's beating of the drum in relation to where border poll has certainly heightened those tensions. I think the elections in the North in the coming weeks are going to be very telling as to how stable the states are, you know, North and South in relation to the institutions of state. Because, like, I think, you know, that sea change, like, will the unionist population in the North actually sit back and be prepared to support a Sinn Féin-led administration in the North? I have my doubts. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, just touching on that and the Northern election that's coming in May, it now looks, I don't know, it would go as far as odds on, but it certainly looks very strongly that you're going to have Sinn Féin as the largest party and therefore a Sinn Féin first minister. And as you say, the big question then is whether or not presumably the DUP will row in and take the deputy first minister's job. Do you see the outcome of the election and how exactly the parties react to it having any fallouts out of the border? I think undoubtedly it will have some fallout south of the border. I mean, all of this is done in the context of Sinn Féin now as sort of the government in waiting down here because they're obviously leading the polls by by some margin so they're they're odds on as you would say previously to be the lead party in the next government now how do they form a majority government is another that's another day's work but they're certainly odds on so the context of Sinn Féin being in power and being in the lead party in power north and south of the border creates a, a great deal of tensions north and south without question because ultimately Sinn Féin if they were to go into government here, if they were to go in, say, with a Fianna Fáil, a kind of a very, very reduced Fianna Fáil, how does that play out? That would lead to its own tensions. Does it go in with a kind of a ragbag of, you know, left-wing parties and, and independence? I mean, how stable would that be? But in the short run, you're looking at just how does the unionist population and the loyalist population up in Belfast and other diehard areas in the north even get their heads around the idea of a Sinn Fein led administration because all of a sudden you're you're in the you're in the space of United Ireland, their identity being even quashed, you know, kind of suppressed even further. And obviously that has to lead to tensions. And obviously when you've seen the sort of gamesmanship and the pretty disgraceful gamesmanship we've seen from parties in the north over the last twelve months or so, you know, the institutions are not in a good space anyway. And then what so what we need to see, hopefully, 
and I'm not sure it's possible, is a, is a mature response from the unionist population and the unionist po- political leaders in the north, the far side of the election, because it does look pretty odds on that Sinn Féin will be the lead party, just whether or not the DUP are grown up enough to kind of you know, remain as part of the institutions or not. That's the big, big question. Yeah, interesting poll I saw there this week, Danny, in relation to, and I think it was taken only in the north, in relation to uh, a poll in United Ireland, something like 30% would vote for tomorrow, that rising to 33% if it was a few years down the line. And it would seem that Sinn Féin are playing down the whole prospect of a border poll now, presumably because they realise they're on the pig's back anyway, in general terms, if they just keep going with their campaign in the north ahead of this election, on the basis of the way the DUP are performing. Yeah, like I think it's been very interesting not only to see the dynamic between Sinn Féin and the DUP and the north playing out, but also just even looking at Sinn Féin's lead personnel up the north. Michelle O'Neill has sort of grown into that position and, and certainly from what I can gather, she's a far more steady leader than she was, you know, say, in the, in, in the first kind of few months or year or so after the over the handover of, of power. So I think it's very interesting to see Sinn Féin. I, I think you're, they're very well placed now to become the lead party. I think what they're trying to do is just keep it tight, keep it between the ditches and not drop the ball in any sense or, or provoke unnecessarily any sort of kind of major row that that could scupper their their goal of becoming the lead party. But ultimately, you know, when the votes are counted and, and we're into that kind of post-election space, you know, it, it goes back to becoming an issue for the political leaders in order to make the arrangement work and make the kind of the, the voice of the people work, you know, in, in terms of the, the for the betterment of Northern Ireland. And I just don't see it at the, in the present space, given everything we're hearing from the DUP, given everything we're hearing from within their own ranks, that there are stable enough, coherent enough, or even able enough to to bring themselves to sit in as the you know the deputy first minister or the junior coalition partner in in a northern administration. So that means there's a lot of work to do between Dublin and London and Belfast in order to try and make sure that the institutions don't go into a sort of prolonged, you know, kind of uh, absence. Because you know every, what we've seen is that every time that the institutions have not been up and running in North, very very real damage has been done. And and uh, I, I think you know I think. 23 years or 24 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, it's time that the people of Northern Ireland actually got a start of actually, you know, living on their own two feet rather than having to be propped up by, by Dublin and, and London. And as, as the point was being made to me this week, you know, at what point does the peace process stop being the peace process? It just becomes a peace. You know, I mean, it's, it's a time that we just need to get on with it and, and grow up. But I just don't see that level of, you know, adult behaviour coming from certainly the extreme elements of the DUP at the moment. Yeah, as you said, the peace process, a lot of people have made hay on the process and it's a lot of hay that's being made when you go on for 24 years, but it's well made, all right, in fairness, it's a good point. Taking it back down south again, uh, Danny, uh, the other issue, climate change, and I suppose the manifestation of that is this week and the last few weeks has largely been something of a difference of opinion on whether or not, uh, first of May I think it is, Increase in the carbon tax, which I think amounts really in real terms to a couple of euro a month. But it has to some extent become a, a, a political football. Would that be fair? It certainly has become a football because it, it has become a very identifiable stick for the opposition to beat the government over the head with. Because it's already legislated for, they've known since last October that they were due to kick in on March 1st. And obviously, as the cost of living pressures became more and more acute, we've heard increased calls from the likes of Sinn Féin and from uh, the likes of the hard left 
for those charges to be to be waived. What we've seen in recent years or recent weeks, I think this has been the game changer. Is you, you've seen quite a number of of government TDs and backbenchers calling for the calling for the same thing for 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 those charges to be waived. And obviously, there were motions down before the parliamentary party meetings last night uh, for for that to happen. Because of those motions, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar told their respective parties that those on low and middle incomes will essentially will not feel any pinch in relation to the carbon tax, that the impact of those will be offset. That's a clear admission from government that they've lost the control of this and that they've had to essentially cave in and find a series of offsets. So you're now looking at the government is now having to find more money to make sure that people who are at low and middle incomes, who are in, in receipt of, say, the fuel allowance and other sort of measures, they're going to be further buffeted at an extra cost to the exchequer simply to raise a tax that's going to go back into retrofitting. So it's become very messy for the government to try and keep on top of this particular issue. I think there is legitimacy in keeping the carbon taxes in place because, you know, for me, it actually it, it was is the clear example of grown-up politics actually kicking in, that you're committing to a kind of a course of action, not over one year or two years, but over 10 years. Yes, it's painful. Yes, but if you do it in a step-by-step, it's a sort of a, you know, you're phasing your way into it and you're you're adjusting people's behaviour by doing it. So it, to me, it seems like a good idea. But it's very difficult to argue that case when you're seeing 10% plus increases in the price of, of food, when you're seeing the really sharp, in price, you know, sharp increases in prices in terms of, you know, f- filling your tank of gas, heating your home, all the rest of it. So it, it's like, it, 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 it's the straw that almost make, that broke the, the camel's back. Like, you know what I mean? It's not, not in isolation. It doesn't seem like a big thing. But when it's conflated with all these other, you know, uh, previous issues, it just becomes, and the opposition have made have made an awful lot of ground of, made, of doing this. You know, it just becomes that these hard-pressed families are at breaking point and this is the thing that pushes them over that breaking point. Yeah, it would strike me. There's two elements. So one is... Um, the opposition, principally Sinn Féin, but as you say, other parties as well, are opposed to the concept of carbon taxes. Now, in relation to that, one of the aims of the carbon tax is to change behaviour, and it has to be said, there are some restrictions in that regard in rural Ireland in particular. How do you change from a car if you have no public transport, etc., or anything in that line? Of course, you could go back and say why have we so many one-off houses? That's neither here nor there. So I, I, I can understand a certain opposition, but I think overall the science is that, in general, it does contribute to changing behaviour, and that's the reason it's there. So you have the opposition that basically they can't lose in this one because they're opposed to carbon taxes anyway. But having said that, Danny, is it not the case that in reality what we're doing is saying, well... Yeah, the planet's burning. Uh, we've got another IPCC report last Monday that says the window's closing even faster than we thought. But it's tomorrow's problem, so let's long finger it. Yeah, and you know Irish politics, as long as I've been watching it, Mickey, you know, we've always had these kind of conflicts between short-term opportunism and the long-term benefits of, of what needs to be done. The pensions issue is another classic example of you know putting it off until tomorrow and the never-never. And ultimately, all you're doing is basically storing up a bigger problem. By not addressing it today, all you're doing is storing up a bigger problem for tomorrow. Um, in relation to the carbon tax, I, you know, I, I think you know the government's resolve in keeping the carbon tax in place and not waiving it is largely driven to the fact that the Green Party are in government as well. I think if the Green Party were not in government, you probably wouldn't have had a carbon tax you know, <laughs> put in place the way it is. And you certainly wouldn't have had any difficulty in saying given a war situation, you would not have had any difficulty in parking it or waiving it for a year. Because, But I just think, for a government cohesion perspective, they've said, listen, we can't back out of this. We have to stay committed to it. But as Michal Martin says, you know, the way around it is to offset it as much as they possibly can. So you nullify the issue 
you know, rather than rather than having to kind of cave into the opposition completely. Yeah. Um the general political landscape, Danny, um Sinn Fein seemed to be consolidating in terms of being the biggest party up around the low to mid thirties. Uh have dropped below twenty percent. Fianna Fáil appear to be making a bit of a comeback. But in terms of personalities, you had a very interesting column recently about the the I don't know, is it the the, the resurgence in fortunes for Michal Martin? And I think you hit on something there because it did appear going back a while that he was being swamped by events and circumstances, but it wasn't a good look. And he seems to be moving with a certain amount of confidence now, uh, a, a newfound thing. Yeah, I think he's certainly grown into the role of Taoiseach. I think, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, he had a very disastrous start. You know, when you're losing not one, but two agricultural ministers within the space of seven weeks, you know, that like that will just knock anybody off and, and, and probably be represent a blow to anybody's confidence. Um, I suppose what I was trying to get into, Mick, there was like, you know, since last summer, and maybe you might say a bit of fortune, but since the Dublin base out by election where Jim O'Callaghan was the director of elections, Michal Martin, through by naming him and through the disastrous election, in a, in a strange way, he's nullified Jim O'Callaghan as a potential rival because Jim O'Callaghan has certainly lost ground in that race to succeed Michal Martin. What I was reporting as well was that at that point, in, there was eight names on a list presented to Jim O'Callaghan and his chief ally, John Lahart. And, you know, had they got to the 10, they would have been able to move ahead with that motion of no confidence. And I have it confirmed that Jim O'Callaghan and John Lahart refused to sign that name, that list of names. So it was almost akin to his Brian Lenehan moment of, you know, being ready, you know, being looked to to kind of wield the, wield the knife into, in, into the leader, but just couldn't bring himself to do so. And I think what he's done, what Micheál Martin's been able to do since then is solidify his position as leader. Uh, and I think the point, again, I was making was that, you know, Every time he's been asked this question about does he intend to lead the party into the next election, he's always said yes, he 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 will. It was not credible a year ago to think that he would lead the party into the next general election. It is far more credible now, given the absence of a of a main rival to take him out, and two as well, given that you have what would have been one of his main chief critics internally, Barry Cowan, coming out into the media and saying, "Listen, the heave is all but off, and uh, you know he's pretty much safe and will be able to become tarnished." Uh, and then be able to remain in office. So he'll stay as long as as, as there's, an, there's no one there to take him out, and there just isn't that clear body or person making any sort of moves, obviously, uh, who's even threatening to take him out. You know, So I, I, I think he's in a better space than he, at any time since he has become teacher. Actually, I think he's in a more comfortable space at any time than he's ever been since he became Fianna Fáil leader in 2011. Um, but I, you know, from an internal politics point of view, he's never been loved by his party. They've liked him, they've tolerated him. Don't they've never loved him. Um, but I just think that there is an absence now of a figure for the kind of the malcontents to kind of coalesce around, and that ultimately only plays into the strength of Michal Martin's position. And I, you also had a story, Danny, uh, which would perhaps. Um sort things out to put it that way for some of the people in Fianna Fáil who want things to move on at some point and that is that there's a possibility he might become the next EU commissioner Yeah and now forgive me the division bells here are going behind me in Leinster House but, um, but they add a bit of drama to, to proceedings um, but I suppose the way he was thinking is that if Michal Martin becomes tarnished uh, he has to take up a new portfolio and there's obviously that leads to the kind of the machinations of, of a, a reshuffle that will have to happen in December of this year and then all of a sudden people are saying well, well 
if he is going to do that, and if he and if they don't want him to lead the party into the next general election, how do you do him? Rather than taking him out, why not reward him with a plum job in Europe, as Charlie McCreevy famously said? And the plum job in Europe that Ireland has at its disposal comes in 2024, and it's the the choice of our next commissioner. Crucially, it's a Fianna Fáil pick this time round. It's not a Fianna Gael pick because it was that that. That came out when Mairead McGuinness succeeded Phil Hogan in the wake of Golfgate because it was made clear then it was a Fianna Gael pick that time, but it would be Fianna Fáil next time round. So what it, by moving Micheál Martin to Europe, it allows him to depart the national stage without any sort of blood having to be spilled. It avoids a nasty internal you know, division in relation to a leadership contest um, or certainly any sort of potential heave or nastiness there. It would allow... A con- sorry, a contest uh, for a leader could happen on a very you know, structured and managed basis rather than one being sort of precipitated through crises. And from a Micheál Martin perspective, it will allow him to finish his career on a high. And as a former prime minister, he would be a shoo-in for a top-tier commissionership rather than kind of going in at the tail end of, of the lower ranks in, in Europe. So there's a lot there to be said for that happening, uh, just whether or not he can get consensus around that remains to be seen. But certainly as of now... There is that school of thought building within Fianna Fáil that Micheál Martin's exit from the national stage, rather than it being a bloody one, could be one that comes from an elevation to uh, that plum job in Brussels. I've seen a few, I suppose you'd call them wise old owls on social media recently suggesting that not only would he probably be the leader going to the next election, but he may well be one of Fianna Fáil's biggest assets going in to the next general election. Could you see that? And at this stage, do you see him being in that position? It's very interesting, actually, because, I, you know, for a long part of this government's life, we've seen the contrast between how Leo Varadkar does his business and how Micheál Martin has done his business. We've seen Micheál Martin very slow, considered, very cautious, and I've been very critical of him uh, about being so cautious, particularly during COVID-19. And he does not seem to kind of react to the sort of day-to-day political rows and scandals and all the rest of it, which drive his own party absolutely bonkers. They seem to think he's he, he's not responsive. However, the, the benefit of his approach is that slow and steady approach means that, you know, he's been able to convince people over time that he's a solid pair of hands. He has impressed, I have to say, at European level. I mean, he's been able to, he, he's able to hold his own and mix quite well and comfortably uh, at European level and articulate Ireland's view very co- convincingly. And I don't say that because I'm not necessarily Micheál Martin's greatest advocate. I never have been really. But what I would say is that, you know, you when you see him mixing it with, you know, Ola Schultz, Macron and all the rest of them, I mean, he's able to hold his own and articulate a very strong, uh, distinct voice from an Irish perspective. Um, whether or not you're going into a next general election and he's still leader, given that he's been around the block for so long and given the round, you know, he he was at, you know, at the table in the cabinet for four, the 14 years that led up to the financial crash and whether or not that's still a factor or not remains to be seen. Um, one thing I will be very clear in, in Mick, is like Fine Gael have had three three disastrous elections, be, be they local Europeans and now general election under Leo Varadkar. He's lost five by-elections in a row Um and so his electoral record is disastrous. Micheál Martin can point to a more mixed electoral record. He had a decent enough election in 2016, a disappointing day in 2020, was barely, I think, lucky to hang on in 2020 
by the fact that Fine Gael did equally as bad or or even worse. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, their their job essentially will be to try and stop Sinn Féin from getting into government next time round. And whether or not they can do that between them remains to be seen. Whether or not Micheál Martin is the big asset going into the next election, it depends on the quality of the election campaign that they that they run. Fianna Fáil didn't exactly have a the most dynamic campaign in 2020, but Micheál Martin is correct when he says this, like, you know, the four years of government matter probably less these days in modern politics than the quality of your campaign. It will all ride on what happens in the three, four weeks of, a, of an election campaign, and that will determine everything. Yeah, very true. Very briefly, Danny, the other thing that would strike me, I don't know what you think, Michal Martin, were he to be leading Fianna Fáil at the next general election, there wouldn't be as strong a chance of Fianna Fáil coalescing with Sinn Féin after the election, should the numbers dictate, as if somebody else was doing so. And perhaps that could play into the dynamic as to whether or not he'll be around at the time of the election. That's a very fair point. And again, I suppose one of the lessons out of 2020 from a Fianna Fáil perspective was that the party felt they made a mistake by being so definitive about ruling out Sinn Féin and Fine Gael in the run-up to the election campaign or during the election campaign. So what you might see is a lot more equivocation around potential coalition options next time round. You know, you might see, you know, we're running on our own, we're running on our own agenda. We'll let the we'll let the numbers dictate, and then we'll we'll start talking to people. Um, and if it's a case of not ruling out Sinn Féin ahead of the election then that might be the course he, 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 he goes. But again, that will be one of the key decisions that they have to take as a party going into the election. Yep. Danny, thank you very much for those insights, as always. Mick, thank you very much. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. We'll talk again next week, so go easy in the meantime. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.